Hey, we're going to study tonight the book of Philemon. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Philemon. Philemon is the Apostle Paul's shortest letter. It's 335 words in the Greek text. It's a very short letter. So short, in fact, that there are no chapters. There are only verse numbers. And there are really very few verse numbers. There are but 24, 25 verses in the book of Philemon. Very short, very manageable. And it's somewhat unique in Paul's writings. It is both a personal and a public correspondence. What I mean by that is Paul is writing directly to an individual named Philemon. That's where the book title comes from. It's not completely unique that Paul would write to an individual. He wrote to Timothy, first and second Timothy, and Titus, specifically to Titus. But there's a, a personal tone about Philemon that even goes beyond what you might see in first, second Timothy and Titus. In this case, there's something that might be regarded as a private matter that's being addressed. It's a deeply personal letter. But it also has, it involves the public to some extent. And I use the word public in the most generic of, of ways. Paul is joined by Timothy in the writing of this letter. And he addresses this letter, although specific in its concerns to Philemon, he addresses this letter to other members of the church Philemon gathers with, and even the church in general. We'll talk about that just a little bit as we get started, the role the church has in helping to address issues that exist within certain members or specific members of the church. In this case, a member of the church and a, a brother Christian who is abroad and at this point in his life imprisoned. There's a, a, a really a sensitive issue that's at play in the book of Philemon. Paul, in his imprisonment, has crossed paths with a man named Onesimus. And Onesimus was owned by Philemon. Philemon was a slave owner, and Onesimus was one of his slaves. Onesimus has escaped, and it seems as though he probably stole some items when he escaped. And he finds the Apostle Paul in his imprisonment. Now, when he finds Paul, Paul shares the gospel with him. And Onesimus is legitimately saved from his sin. He becomes a partner in the gospel with Paul for a brief season. But realizing that there's something just a little wrong about the scenario, Paul writes the letter of Philemon and sends it by the hand of Onesimus back to Philemon, appealing to Philemon for the release from bondage of this slave named Onesimus. Now, that's a sensitive issue, right? And in, in virtually every century since the first century during which Philemon was written, there have been social issues that have bumped into this deeply sensitive social issue of slavery. Even within American history, Philemon was a book appealed to often in the South because Philemon doesn't seem to bear any expressed opposition to the institution of slavery. I think that, that represents a misunderstanding of the book of Philemon, but in its historical interpretation, that's the way it was represented in the South uh, among the Confederate states where slavery was being defended greatly, strongly. Even now, with some of the social issues that are before us on a constant basis, Philemon can be, in Christian circles, a book that is often appealed to, again, 
because of the absence of any expressed opposition to the institution of slavery. We'll talk about that in further detail as we move on. But that's the sensitive, personal issue that is at hand in the book of Philemon. Now, there's some other things that we, we stand to benefit from. In fact, I think there are two key contributions that the book of Philemon makes for us. They're listed there in your outline. One, Philemon provides us with an example of the kind of mutual love and respect that is to characterize the body of Christ. What do interpersonal relationships within the body of Christ look like under the power of the gospel? Philemon is a remarkable example of this. Because of the deeply personal tone of the letter itself, we get some insight into Paul's interactions with other members of the body of Christ that are exemplary for us. In other words, we get the privilege of looking into Paul's interactions with others, and we can model in our personal experience after the ways of the Apostle Paul. Again, he is exemplary in his interaction with Philemon. He is exemplary in his interaction with Onesimus. We can assume the same is true for Onesimus and Philemon and their interactions with Paul. Here, here we stand to gain a great deal by looking at their example. Secondly, Philemon provides the church with understanding the Christian approach to the social issue of slavery, and I would say it even provides us with some understanding of how to deal with other sensitive social issues. One of the things that stands out about the book of Philemon is that Paul is really looking beyond our earthly experiences to those things which are most eternally significant. It's not that there's disinterest in the, in the institution of slavery. It is that Paul is looking beyond that. And the key theme seems to be a shift in the way Paul regards Onesimus as a former slave now in the gospel and the way he commends Philemon to regard his former slave given that both of them have been taken by the power of the gospel. So there are, there's some insight here that we stand to benefit from. Look to verse 1 of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy our brother. Now let's stop and note for just a moment that the way Paul introduces himself is significant. One, it's a reminder to us that Philemon is one of those four books in the New Testament often referred to as the prison epistles. Paul was imprisoned at least twice in his ministry, and in the first of those imprisonments, he writes a series of four letters. He writes Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon at once. In fact, my theory is that these letters are bound together. Onesimus is mentioned in the conclusion of Colossians, and Paul seems to be sending uh, Onesimus not only to, to report to Philemon and to plead for his release from slavery, but also as a bearer, a deliverer of the message that Paul intended to communicate to the church at Colossae. You, you might remember some weeks ago we talked about how much similarity exists between Ephesians and Colossians. It stands to reason that those two letters were written at the same time and therefore delivered at the same time. And then near the end of that imprisonment, the book of Philippians um, was likely written at the end of that imprisonment and so delivered to uh, the church at Philippi. So Paul is literally a prisoner for Jesus Christ when he writes the book of Philemon. But the language of prisoner here is, is not only reflective of his current status, it's also really close 
to Onesimus' position before Philemon. If you don't regard him as a prisoner at the present hour, as a slave, he would, upon his capture, certainly be a prisoner for having escaped the ownership of Philemon. So not only is Paul giving some expression to his current position, he's also identifying with the condition of Onesimus as a slave, a runaway slave, and a potential prisoner if he's not received well when returning to his master, Philemon. Paul says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Appia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. So Philemon is a member of a church that meets in the home of Archippus. Paul is addressing this deeply sensitive and deeply personal issue with Philemon. But he enjoins in this letter, and therefore enjoins in the conversation, Appia, our sister, Archippus, who seems to be the host home, perhaps the pastor of the church, as well as other members of the church that meet in his home. He may be dealing with a sensitive personal issue, but in this instance, he finds benefit in involving the body of Christ in the resolution of this matter. I'm not saying to you that whatever is going on in every member of the body's life is your personal business in every instance. But I am saying to you that there are certain controversies that arise that can benefit from the collective wisdom of the body rather than being isolated from the eye or the attention of others who may have interest in seeing the issue brought to resolution. It can be a very positive thing to have openness within the body and to involve others within the fellowship of the church to participate in the resolving of complicated or complex issues that exist within members of the body. You should never feel as though you cannot be open with at least some members of the body and seek their assistance in bringing resolution to the issues that you face. Even within the body, there ought to be those with whom you are so comfortable you are able to truly bear your heart and to enlist their support and assistance in bringing resolution to the complex issues that arise within our life. Sometimes the perception of Philemon is that this is just Paul writing directly to Philemon, completely overlooking these initial verses that make reference to these other parties involved in, in bringing an end to this conflict. But it's clear here, right, in the introduction that Paul intends not only the attention of Philemon in this matter, but others within the church as well. And it's clear that Paul is not in isolation as he gives consideration to this issue. He lists Timothy as a co-author for this book, as at his side, a partner in the gospel. And by implication, he enlists the support of Timothy to prevail on Philemon that he would see things from this kingdom perspective. Verse 3, he offers here this sort of generic Pauline Blessing, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 4 through 7, likewise, are very similar to many of Paul's letter. Here, here's, here he says, I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and faith toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. 
pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. There are a few things that stand out about those few verses. Yes, it's almost a customary introduction. And it may feel even more so customary because we've recently finished Philippians and Ephesians and Colossians. And the introductions in each of those letters is very, very close to this introduction in Philemon because they're all written closely together in terms of time and chronology. But there are a few key things that stand out in these verses. Bear in mind here that there's a tension that exists between Paul and Philemon. And in spite of that tension, and in spite of the fact that Paul has no idea whatsoever how Onesimus will be received by Philemon, he assumes and expects the best of Philemon because he is a brother in Christ. It is a virtuous thing and a virtue that is lost on many today to simply assume and expect the best out of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You will bypass so many controversies and, and shortcut so much conflict in your life if you will simply start out with the presumption that what you heard or what you saw was intended for the absolute best. We start from a different position in our culture. And that's why we have the controversy and the conflict that we almost perpetually have. I swear, I don't know where these people get the time to police every tweet and every Facebook post. And, and, and the people that sit around and scour sermons to find issue with someone somewhere simply trying to do the work of Jesus. I, I don't get the social media interactions. It's just best, and I'm not talking about compromising key doctrinal issues. I'm not talking about becoming weak theologically. I'm just talking about starting with the assumption that our brothers and sisters in Christ really do intend the best, and given time and opportunity, will do what is best for the advancement of the kingdom. I get that that's not always the case, but isn't that a virtuous place to begin in assessing the ministries, the activities, the speech, and the writings of those around us? Paul, Paul anticipates the best from Philemon and not the worst. The second thing that stands out in these verses is the way Paul appeals to the virtue of love again and again and again in the ministry of Philemon. Some, something about his character is loving. Paul, Paul uses the language of love a number of times here in the passage. In verse 5 he says, I've been praying for you and thanking God for you because I hear of your love and faith toward the saints, uh, toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. In verse 7 he says again, I have great joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And later in the letter, Paul says, I'm not appealing to my apostolic authority here. I'm appealing to you on the basis of love. Now, he could have played the Apostle Paul card and said, Philemon, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. When he gets there, you're going to redeem him, and you're going to turn him loose and send him back to Rome. And if you don't, I'll be by your house in a month or two. But he doesn't take that tone. Rather than appealing to his apostolic authority or his power, 
he appeals to Philemon on the basis of the virtue of love. You know, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. That's a pretty strong appeal, right? He doesn't come elbowing his way to the front of the crowd, insisting that it be his way or no way. He appeals to Philemon on the basis of love. Verse 7 is one of these, or verse 6 rather, is, is one of these verses that's a little clunky in terms of translation. Pray, I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. You all following that? Look back to verse 6 again. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. It's a really raggedy translation of the Greek in verse number 6, but the essence is this. I pray that your knowledge of all things would grow, would become effective, would be enlarged, would be increased by the practice of what you already know. That's a principle that's pretty well reflected in most of Paul's writings. The more you practice the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, the better understanding there is of the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. From time to time, someone will come to me with a question, a, a doctrinal or a theological question, and most of the time, you know, there, we all have questions and those things arise, but there are certain instances where the best way to learn the depths of the Scripture is by practicing the simple principles of the Scripture. This is again repeated again and again in the New Testament. Understanding the Bible is a work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul says the natural man can't discern the things of the Spirit. Your only hope for understanding what the Bible says is the direction of the Holy Spirit. You know why there are lost biblical scholars who know more about the Bible in terms of information than virtually anyone in the world, and yet they remain untouched by the power of the gospel? Because the natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit. Your understanding of the Scripture is a product of the work of God's Holy Spirit in you. And you know what God's Spirit is pleased to attend? The holiness of His people. And so as we pursue the obedience of God's Word in our life, Often God is pleased to join His Spirit with our labor and righteousness. And under the influence of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus promised would guide us in the discernment of all truth, our eyes are opened and our minds are enlightened to the deep things of the Scripture. Unless you are practicing the principles of the Scripture, there will always be strong limitations on your ability to understand the deep things of the Scripture. So Paul says, I hope that your knowledge of all things is enlarged by your practice of the principles of the Scripture. That's what he's saying here. I want you to know more and more about the love of God as you practice more and more the love of God. And having witnessed in the life and character of Philemon, this bent toward love and generosity and kindness, so much so that the hearts of the saints had been refreshed by him. Paul's desire is to see Philemon go deeper and deeper in the love of Christ as he is more and more faithful in practicing and exercising the love of Christ. And what he's hinting at here, which is 
firmed up later in the letter, is that Philemon, this is an opportunity for you to forego your personal legal rights and privileges as an expression of the love that Jesus has for his. That's what Jesus did. He would forego his legal rights and privileges as one who died in absolute innocence as a criminal in order that we might have salvation from our sins. That's the model that Jesus establishes for us. And the plea is, the strong plea of Philemon, is that he would model his life after that of Jesus in foregoing his legal rights and privileges, in liberating Onesimus, regarding him as a brother, and partnering together with him in the advancement of the gospel. There is a great deal that we can glean even in these introductory verses to the letter. In verse 8, we get to the heart of the issue. Paul says in verse 8, For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to come to you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appealed to you for my son Onesimus. I fathered him while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you as a part of myself. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but out of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me, but even more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Notice, notice how Paul clearly loves Onesimus. The relationship that Onesimus now has with Jesus has transformed his status with the Apostle Paul. Remember what Paul says in Colossians 3.17, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. Do you imagine that Onesimus was in mind when Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote those words? Remember who delivered the letter of Colossians to the church at Colossae? It was in the hand of a slave that that message came to the church at Colossae. And now Paul is regarding Onesimus in a completely different light in view of the fact that he's now a brother in Christ. Which, by the way, is not to say that you would see someone in, in the position of servitude or slavery in a lower light or in a lesser way. We are to regard even the least of these as important, as equal, as, as bearing value, as image bearers. But now he's become a brother. Here's, a, here's the best way I know how to illustrate this change in our perspective. I will never forget when my oldest son came to faith in Jesus. And, and, and he was pretty mature at a pretty young age, and so there were concerns with that, and we were wrestling through that for a long time. Some of you have been there and gone through that. In some ways, he's still pretty mature for his age. In some ways, he's still nine, but such is the life of a teenage boy, right? But I, I remember that night, our praying together and talking through what this meant and feeling in this weird way 
like I now, now we're talking about my, my oldest, my son and my oldest son, but feeling after his conversion as though there was a new level of obligation I now have to him, not just as a son, but now as a brother in Christ. Y'all with me? I, I don't know how to quantify that or, or really how to define that shift in obligation or the weight of that responsibility. I'm not talking about loving others less who don't know Christ. I'm simply talking about the fact that there ought to be a special love and a special sense of obligation that we bear toward those who name the name of Jesus. Paul's outlook, Paul's regard for Onesimus has been completely overhauled by the realization that this man has now come to faith in Christ. There seems to have been this phenomenon in the Roman Empire where slaves who escaped would search out a benefactor or someone who had special influence with their master in order to plead with them that they would plead with their master for their redemption from slavery. It seems that that's what's happening here. Onesimus knows that Paul bears great influence with Philemon, and maybe, just maybe, Paul has the chops, has the influence, or maybe even has the financial ability to have him liber liberated from his slavery. So he goes to Paul. And, and rather than Paul meeting the immediate practical or material need that Onesimus comes with, he addresses the spiritual need. And I, and I just got to tell you, listen, we tend to run to imbalance on these issues. I see ministries that are so fixated on meeting material needs that they have zero interest whatsoever in the, in the more desperate, deeper spiritual need of those who come under their care. And I, I see ministries who regard themselves as being heavenly-minded for the advancement of the kingdom with zero interest whatsoever in meeting the material needs of real people in real-life circumstances with real pressing material, financial, or physical needs. And the picture the gospel paints is somewhere in between, right? Like there are times when meeting the material needs of those under your care, or under your help as a minister, opens doors for kingdom advancement but never to the neglect of their most pressing need, which is a need for the message of the gospel. The likelihood is if your emphasis is entirely on the message of the gospel with no mercy, no compassion, and no interest in the real-life needs of those individuals, you're not going to have much of a hearing. And the reality is you can give everything you have away. We can give everything we have away. But if we never whisper the message of the gospel, we've left them as spiritually bankrupt as we found them in the first place. He comes to Paul with this real-life circumstance. And Paul doesn't neglect to address that. In fact, Philemon is all about Paul's willingness to address that. But he doesn't do it to the neglect of the message of the gospel. In fact, in the case of Onesimus, it seems that the gospel may have been right up front. Because Onesimus, early in this interaction with Paul, is exposed to the gospel. He believes the gospel, and he's born again, saved by the power of the gospel, and now regarded in an entirely different light. Clearly, Paul loves Philemon. He's expressed as much in our passage. Clearly, Paul loves Onesimus. He says as much in our passage. 
And the conclusion that Paul is coming to in his heart and what he hopes to be the outcome of this letter is that Philemon will understand his new obligation, his new responsibility, this new love in the gospel for Onesimus will spring forth, or for, uh, yes, for Onesimus will spring forth in the heart of Philemon as he comes to understand that he too has come to faith in Jesus. Go back to verse 9. He says, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love, I, Paul, as an elderly man and now as a prisoner of Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. I fathered him while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he's useful both to you and to me. You can't see it in the English text, but this is a really clever play on words. Because the Greek name Onesimus means useful. And so Paul's playing the word game here. He's saying, he was useless to you because he escaped. You didn't have him anymore. He was of no benefit to you. But now, if you'll embrace him as a brother and a partner in the gospel, he'll become useful to you not only on earth, but also in heaven. You have the opportunity to embrace Onesimus once more for his usefulness in life and in ministry. He says in verse 12, I'm sending him back to you as a part of myself. I wanted to keep him with me so that my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your good deed might not be out of obligation but out of your own free will. Let me ask you something. Is it right that Onesimus would be a slave? The, the answer is no, by the way. It's not right. But in spite of this, in spite of this, Paul sends him back to, to seek the, his willful release from Philemon. As kingdom citizens in a world that is not our own, there are going to be some times when we're called on to do what we know may be morally wrong. In other words, something is being done against us that is not right. It just is not right. I give you, I give you an example from my own personal life beating our head for three years against the wall with a foster care case that anybody with half a brain could have resolved two and a half years ago. It is not right. It is morally wrong to continue to subject these children to a system that is broken at best and corrupt at worst. Now, what I would like to do is unspeakable at church. But the right thing to do, the right thing to do is to continue to submit to governing authorities and to seek to do what is right at every turn. It is wrong, it is wrong, it is immoral that Onesimus would be a slave. But in spite of that, Paul seeks to be completely above reproach in all his ways seeking to be a hindrance to the gospel in no way, shape, form, or fashion, even, even sending Onesimus back to seek the pardon of his slave owner, Philemon. Now, that's a jagged pill, but i got to tell you, it's a gospel pill that we ought to learn how to swallow lest we do harm to the reputation of Jesus' church and hinder in some way the advancement of his 
kingdom. And there are real-life examples of ways that this works itself out. Real-life examples. i got a list in mind that time won't afford us the opportunity to talk through. But you need to really wrestle with this principle. There are going to be times when people do things to you that are not right. And in spite of that, you swallow that jagged gospel-shaped pill and you do what is right regardless of what those around you do or what they deserve. Verse 15, Paul says, For perhaps this is why I was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He's especially so to me, even more so to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. I want us to move on to verses 17 and following. This is sort of the last section, the last paragraph. This is Paul's strong plea to Philemon. So if you consider me a partner, accept him as you would me. And if he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I'll repay it, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self. Yes, brother, may I have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Since I'm confident of your obedience, I'm writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I hope that through your prayers, I'll be restored to you. Now I got to tell you, because I'm a sinner, and I got just a little vindictive streak, I've always wondered if maybe there wasn't something of a veiled threat in what Paul says here, right? Like, I'm asking you to do me this favor, and I want you to know you owe me. And I'm really expecting that you're going to do the right thing. And by the way, I'm coming to visit. See you later. I'm confident that that would be my tone if I had written the book of Philemon. But I'm hopeful that maybe that wasn't the tone at all that the Apostle Paul took in this passage. In fact, given his emphasis on the virtue of love in the book of Philemon, I'm not sure at all that that was the intent of the Apostle Paul. I think the greater likelihood is that Paul's note in the conclusion of this paragraph that he's coming for a visit, prepare a room for him, is probably just a reflection of the deep love that he has for Philemon and the closeness of fellowship that was enjoyed within the early church. You know, when people are trying to kill you, you'll draw pretty close. And you'll find commonality, common ground, and deep love and affection for those who are in the trenches with you. That's what we're missing in America, by the way. We'll learn how to love one another when people start hunting Christians again in the Western world. I, I think this is a sincere appeal to, to the love and affection that seems to have been customary in the experience of Philemon toward others, and now Paul hopes toward Onesimus as well. Paul says, I'll pay his tab. Whatever he's lost, whatever you need, I'll write the check. I'll pay his way. I'll meet the need. I'll make it right. I'll take his place. Receive him even as you would me. There's, there ought to be a willingness on our part to, to, to find that place and ability to stand in the gap and to pay the tab and to cover the charge and to speak for to testify to the character of those whose lives have been transformed by the power of the gospel. 
I get, and I think I get this as well as most anybody, the challenges that can come with this and striking balance, there's a world of difference between meeting the financial needs of those who come to faith under our care and enabling their bad behavior, a world of difference. And sometimes only a subtle distinction in the act itself, right? You, you can empower for obedience or you can empower for disobedience, and great discernment is required in knowing which is which. But there ought to be a willingness on our part, an open-handedness, to be able to provide support and encouragement and help and assistance in any way imaginable. You know, this is the kind of thing that typically, as, as a church, we would be resistant to, right? Like, we don't ordinarily get in the business of paying fines, legal fees, or bailouts. Like, like if you get arrested, you, maybe there's a place for that, right? You know, to be there to provide encouragement when there's rep repentance and contrition. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying it's not always easy for us to operate within neatly defined or constructed boxes when it comes to Christian benevolence and generosity. Here Paul, will, Paul is willing to pay the price, and so, so, so too should, should we. This is a really neat and insightful picture into the kind of connectedness that seems to exist between Paul and members of the body. And it's the kind of connectedness that I pray God would grant us in friendships and in fellowships within our small groups and within our body here as a church. May God grant it so. There's a bit of heartbreak. Question? Thank you for the way you clearly Paul and Philemon knew each other. Mm -hmm. He know he's he knows Onesimus. He knows him now, but did he know him before? It doesn't seem that he did. There's so that means that at some point he had to kind of come clean about who he was and that yes. slave and the fact that he was transformed about that mm -hmm. remarkable because he could have just gotten saved and just left and fled. Yes, but there does seem to be a pattern where you would have searched out someone with influence with your master so that you could get them to go and ask your master to let you go. So maybe there, there may, he may be, it may be that Onesimus goes to Paul with an agenda to start, saved from his sin, and now Paul is willing to help a brother to seek his redemption from slavery. That, that seems to be a bit of the background. There, there's a note of heartbreak in the conclusion of, of this book, and, and it's just an expression of, of the reality. Verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You remember the name Demas? Paul says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. In fact, he says, only Luke is with me. All had left him. Some left because they were involved in gospel ministries, but Demas had forsaken Paul and, and the ministry, having loved this present world. It's a reminder to us that even when you love and love well, there will be heartbreak. In fact, the vulnerability that comes with loving and loving well almost makes heartbreak inevitable. But I'd also remind you that in spite of the frustrations and the heartbreak that can come, the church of Jesus Christ is still the best thing going. And not only is it morally right, it's of eternal value that we would love and love well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. 
and for these moments to spend together giving consideration to the book of Philemon. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the love that you have shown us. We love you because you loved us first. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, one last little bit. There is a strong likelihood that Onesimus received redemption from Philemon and goes on to become the bishop of the church in Ephesus in the decades after Paul writes the letter to the church. We can't verify that, but that's, that's the tradition of the church, that the Onesimus, who was the bishop of Ephesus, is the Onesimus of the book of Philemon. It's what an incredible thing God does with a runaway slave. He makes him the bishop of one of the great churches of the first century. Question? Yeah, kind of. The question is, is he implying that because I led you to the Lord, you're now in debt to me in some way? Yes. Yes. He's basically saying, you'd be lost too if it weren't for my faithfulness in the ministry. And now I'm asking you that you grant pardon to this brother who's been faithful in the ministry at my side. That's essentially what he's asking. All right. Have a good one, guys.